You are listening to The Book Judge, a podcast about books that you should read if you're interested in business. I'm your host, Conrad Chua. This is a curated reading list to give you a better grip on how to approach the complex issues that businesses face. I'd love to hear from you on what you like about the show. The best way to do that is to leave a review on the podcast player that you're using, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anything else. I'll feature your comments on future episodes. Now, on to the show. You're probably old enough to have seen the rise and fall of several social media networks. I've used many of them. Does anyone remember Path, Vine, Meerkat? Why did these apps burn brightly for a while before failing? Why did Facebook, Instagram, and WeChat do so well? Many companies and analysts focus on certain features that these market leaders have and see if these can be replicable. But Bharat Anand argues in his book The Content Trap that this approach misses the forest for the trees. It isn't content and features that make a successful company, but the connections between customers and features that a successful company exploits that is important. While most of his book focuses on the media and education industries, the implications are more wide-ranging. This book looks at the biggest strategic issue that any company faces today. How do you get noticed? And how do you get paid? Many companies fail to address these two aspects because they fall into what Anand calls the content trap. The first way to fall into the content trap is ignoring context. People in companies make decisions based on their operating context. This means that it's foolish to just copy one feature of a successful company. That feature works for that company because of the context that it operates in and how that feature connects with all the other decisions the company has made. The second way to fall into the trap is by tightly holding on to content instead of seizing the opportunities that content opens up. Anand talks a lot about this in the book, but I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a business school dean must have been 10 years ago, I suggested putting some lectures on YouTube as like taste of content for prospective candidates. It was quickly rejected by this dean on the grounds that faculty lectures had valuable intellectual property. Of course, most of that IP is captured in slides that are now freely shared anyway. I will share my take on Anand's ideas about how educational institutions can capture more value later. Anand offers some solutions to breaking free from this obsession with hanging on to your own products, features, and contents. And it's all about recognizing and exploiting three types of connections. These are the connections between users, between products, and connections across an organization's activities. The first connection is between users. Anand's first assertion is that by creating content or products based on user behaviors and tastes, we're limiting ourselves. We don't think of how to make content that users will share. I mean, this is not earth-breaking news to us in the 2020s, but what is more insightful is how social media giants like Facebook are actually committing this error. Anand points out that in 2015, Facebook made more than 95% of its revenue from advertising. In comparison, Tencent a social network that had a similar number of users had less than 20% of revenues 
from net advertising. You might be asking, so what? Well, the 1 billion users of Facebook go there to connect with friends. Advertising is an annoyance that users might have to put up with as a cost of free networking. But now that we know how much Facebook tries to influence user behavior for advertisers, well, that, that little ad that pops up doesn't look like that free annoyance that we can put up with anymore. Facebook is focusing on the user behavior for the benefit of advertisers. On the other hand, Tencent, the company, they started off offering instant messaging, but they quickly branched out into other areas. It helped that Tencent started in China at a time when certain critical infrastructure elements were missing. For example, internet access, email accounts, and credit cards were not widespread in the population when Tencent first started in Shenzhen. So they could create, and they had to create, much of this infrastructure themselves. But the way these products turned out, it was all about helping users share. For example, they provided email accounts, but they made money from auctioning the user IDs. They also set up a virtual currency to handle online transactions. Remember, credit cards were just not widely used. The market in this virtual currency grew so large that the Chinese central government occasionally intervenes to stop inflationary pressures. The point is that Facebook might have grown so large by focusing on how users can connect to one another and how they share, but by banking on advertising as the revenue source, it runs the risk of poisoning its own well. Most people outside China might know Tencent for its social media product WeChat, but within China, they have a wide range of online products that give it a much larger presence in Chinese lives. I mean, there's no better indication of that than uh, myself going to China. Every time I went to China, and yes, I haven't been for about a year and a half now because of COVID uh, travel restrictions, but every time I go, I don't have a WeChat wallet. And it becomes very obvious when I can't order food in a restaurant just by scanning the WeChat QR code on the menu. I can't pay directly using a WeChat account. I have to suffer the ignominy and rude glares from staff when I call them over to take my order and pay. And this is why Tencent does not rely as much on advertising revenue as Facebook. It branched out to the other aspects of its lives, of its users, and monetize those connections. To be fair, Facebook has tried to do this, but the mistrust that its core product has generated to feed the advertisers means its efforts at virtual currency and VR have all failed so far. This is the part of the podcast where I place the spotlight on one part of the book that you can use immediately in your business or in an interview or just to impress your business school friends. I call this the Did You Know section. There's a fascinating section in the book about bundling, especially the way the New York Times priced its paywall. I have to admit, I was one of the many doubters Anand described in the book who were scratching our heads when the Times announced its pricing structure. The New York Times started by charging readers a flat $7 per week 
if they read more than 20 articles online a month. The $7 at the time was pretty much double the price of any other digital subscription. But I was willing to pay that because, well, it's the times. But I stopped after about a week when I realized that you could circumvent the paywall. You could access the site by different devices. You could delete cookies. I mean, I could go straight to an article on the New York Times through Google or Facebook without paying. It looked crazy. It looked like the leakiest paywall of all time. It also turned out that all print subscribers would get the digital version free. And most perplexing of all, you paid less for the Sunday print edition and all digital access compared to just paying for the all digital access. In effect, the Times was paying you to buy the Sunday print edition. I couldn't understand these pricing and bundling decisions at the time, but after reading Anand's book, I realized my mistake. I was looking at it solely from my perspective as a subscriber, as a consumer of New York Times articles. I forgot that the Times does not get all its revenue from readers like myself. It also has to take care of advertisers. And this is why they made the Sunday print edition so attractive if you were only a digital subscriber. The Sunday print edition was the one printed edition that had the most ads. It was also why they gave 20 free articles a month and did not make the paywall that tight. It wanted people to read their articles, to see the digital ads. The Times calculated that only a small number of people would be, like myself, thinking of ways to get past its paywall. Most people... They just pay. Anand also has a great primer on how bundles work, not just for the company, but for the consumer in terms of lower prices. This might sound really quite strange when you think about, well, am I paying my cable company for 100 channels that I don't watch, right? I should be paying more. But in effect, a bundle means that consumers actually pay less. I mean, this is about as close as you can get to a Pareto outcome. And it all comes from recognizing the connections between users. You as a company need to recognize that your customer base comprises different user groups. And you have to think how you can bundle and price services to give choice and lower prices to your customers. Bharat Anand was one of the first people to work on Harvard Business School's online offerings, or HBX. So he's on the front line of the digital transformation in higher education. This transformation started with a man called Sal Khan. He uploaded how-to videos on YouTube that taught people how to approach their homework. It quickly grew into the Khan Academy, and now how-to videos have helped make YouTube the second largest search engine in the world. Then you had a Stanford professor who created Udemy. And soon the world was abuzz with talk that MOOCs, or massive open online courses, will spark the end of university education. Well, things didn't turn out quite like that. MOOCs were great 
for a very small group of dedicated and driven people. But the vast majority never completed their MOOC. I'm not ashamed to say I'm one of them. I've not logged on to my Swift programming online class in weeks. It does make me think whether education as a whole is nothing but an expensive but necessary way to corral us lazy humans into learning. Anyway, Anand and a small group of colleagues were tasked to think about how Harvard Business School, or HBS, would go digital. Over the course of several months, they made certain strategic and design decisions that made HBX very different from the courses that came before it. Firstly, they decided it wouldn't be an online MBA. Instead, they started by looking at the two-week foundation course that many HBS MBAs took before classes started. They focused on that material and also decided to retain three core principles from HBS's classroom teaching. These were real-world problem-solving, active learning, and peer learning. They also adopted a digital-first approach, which meant not transplanting the in-person experience wholesale. In the book, Anand goes through other decisions such as pricing and infrastructure. To date, HBX remains the most prominent online offering from a top business school. As a business school professional, I'm fascinated to see how some of these principles could apply more widely. I can't help but think that Anand's core principles are so basic they could be applied by any educational institution. I mean, no business school says they stand for non-real-world problem-solving, passive learning, and just faculty lecturing. I also wonder if HBX's decision to minimize real-time faculty participation stemmed not from a desire to stimulate more peer learning, but really because there was a lack of incentives for faculty to spend time on this fledgling product. Trust me when I say faculty are very incentive-driven when it comes to how they split their time between teaching and research. And yet, Anand might say, I'm falling into his content trap, that every institution is different and it might not be so easy to transplant the HBX model to other institutions. For one thing, Anand does not talk about the power of the Harvard brand that was behind HBX. And since his book was published, HBX has been rebranded to Harvard Business School Online, a mouthful even if you say HBS Online. I wonder whether this was to more strongly profile the HBS brand. With the pandemic pushing more schools to experiment with online teaching, I expect to see more competitors to HBS Online, which will make for a very exciting time in the education sector. That's all for this episode of The Book Judge. If you like what you hear, I want to ask one favour. Tell one other person about the show and encourage them to listen. You can also subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave a review and rating. It helps others discover this show. Till next time, this is your book judge, Conrad Chua.